So I want you to open your Bibles with me tonight to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you say amen to the word, Lord? So we're going to be talking tonight about losing our religion, losing my religion. And there are a couple things that come to mind when I think of that phrase, losing my religion. The first one is, next slide, REM. You remember this one? This is like the only hit these guys ever had. <laughs> it was a fluke hit. The guy was learning how to pay, play the mandolin. And so this just got like, there's no mid-range on this song whatsoever. It's, and it's like nobody thought it would ever take off. And it was a hit. So anytime I hear that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind right there, that song. Then, you know, there's also Lauren Daigle's, next slide, Losing My Religion. How many of you know Lauren Daigle? Yeah. yeah. If you don't have that, uh, you need to get that album. Uh, she's also Cajun. I didn't know if you knew that or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I heard, when I first, she first came out, Daigle, I heard that name Daigle. I said, she's got to be from Louisiana or Southeast Texas because you'll never hear that name anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the next one is uh, Kirk Franklin even had one, Losing My Religion. Now, does anybody really know what Kirk Franklin does? Because it's like everybody's singing and he's just talking. You know? <laughs> GP, are you with me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so he did that. And then there's also the Southern Colloquial. Yeah, I said it right. I, I practiced that word all week long. Next one. The col- Colloquial of losing my religion. The phrase losing my religion is an expression from the southern region of the United States that means losing oneself or one's uh, temper or civility or being at the end of one's rope. And it's like, I hear my, my uh, some people in my wife's family, boy, you're going to make me lose my religion on you. So we are not talking about music this evening or losing your temper. Uh, We're actually talking about losing your religion. So in Matthew chapter five uh, through, uh, let's see, Matthew chapter five through seven, Matthew's chapter, this contains what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, this contains this. Uh, These chapters contain the most concise and definitive statements of Jesus' teaching, clearly contrasting his declaration of the kingdom of God and how it differed radically from what passed as religion in his day and in ours. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is often referred to as the kingdom manifesto. I've used that term a lot in this uh, when we've been preaching through this, this chapter. Manifesto is a statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or views of its user. A manifesto is where you put it all out there for people to grasp, to ponder, and ultimately understand. So Jesus really said some, some very heavy stuff, some deep stuff in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. If you really look into that and you go on through the remainder of the chapter, there are some really, really tough sayings that Jesus was saying. 
And we just kind of gloss over the top of it and move along. But there was really a lot of content here. Uh, these words that he spoke, these weren't just nice words that Jesus said to make people feel good or feel better. And there's a lot of that in, in Christianity today. And that's one of the reasons why some people are having a faith crisis is because the apologetics, the truth of God's word is being undersold for emotion. It's being sold out for appeal. Uh, people, uh, pastors have become more self-help type of gurus. Yes. And, and because, you know, people pay that. I was blown away. I went to, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Danny Johnson. Danny Johnson, she was, uh, did a series on, on um, ABC a few years about the secret millionaire. Nobody. Anyway, she is a motivational speaker. She's a very, she's a Christian woman, very powerful speaker. And you would go to her, I went to one of her events and, you know, we're in the middle of this event and at night, at daytime, she has the business events. Nighttime, she has church. And, you know, these people, and she's like, she's just preaching, man. And there's these people that are paying like 500 bucks a pop to be there. And I'm looking at this, man, this is, this is not bad. You know, you're paying, you're paying for that. And so you know, there's that temptation because there's people out there looking for something. You know, but we can't sell out the gospel. We can't sell out what the Bible teaches. Jesus was teaching some serious things here. So let's go to the next slide, religion, what religion is defined. Religion, defined, religion comes from the Latin ligare, a combination of re to return or repeat and ligare to tie or bind. Our English word ligament comes from this word, to means to bind something, to tighten it up. And uh, the Jewish religious teaching in Jesus' day was referred to as a burden. It was also referred to as a yoke. The teaching of a rabbi, the teaching of a, uh, of a leader was considered a yoke, and it was something that you took upon you. Jesus said it this way, my burden is easy, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yes. Because the law, the, the burden of the law, the yoke of the law, confined people, it restricted people, it didn't help people up, it pushed people down. A yoke, it was a rigorous set of laws and regulations and rules, um, and there were laws and then there were rules so that you didn't violate the laws, and you had to pay attention to not only the law, but also to the rules that applied to the law. So this is like, I don't know if any of you that studied like the heart of New Testament, any of you had Hester's New Te heart of the New Testament? Okay. So a Sabbath day's journey, that was so many feet you could walk in a day. All right. That's, it was just a Sabbath day's journey. So they would walk out and they, that's as far as you could go. Unless, and there was a rule about this, it was a loophole. <laughs> Say, I'm going to go over to Kevin and Debbie's house, but they're a little bit farther than a Sabbath day's journey. So what you do, you drop off the night before a picnic basket about halfway there because you could go further if you were going to a food source. So they had all these rules and regulations and these things that you could work it around. Okay, they're going a little farther, but we're going to have food halfway there so we don't really, we can go there and then we can go to their house. And it's not technically, we're not violating it. See, this is what religion does. It teaches us to look for the loopholes. Look for the loopholes. 
commands, rules to interpret the law. It was burdensome. It was cumbersome and could not produce what God wanted all along, and that's a surrendered and obedient heart. That's what God wants from us. A, a, um, obedient, and I am locked up. I've done this once. But yeah, okay, hang on one second. <laughs> okay, let's see if I can go back here again. There's something I hit, and it, there we go. So it's, it, um, it's a surrendered and obedient heart is what God wants from us. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not a call, Jesus calling for a replacement of one religion for another religion. Okay, we're going to do away with Judaism. Now we're going to be Christians. We're going to have one religion. We're going to trade one religion for another religion. That's not even what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't even talking about religion. He was talking about a, a call to true discipleship. Amen. This is an allegiance to the kingdom of God. Not an a, a, a allegiance to a, uh, a denomination. And I, I heard a guy one time tell me, uh, that I worked with, he said, you know, I'm proud to be, and he named the denomination, and I thought, that's, that's kind of weird, you know, I think, you, you want to, you're, you're very impressed to have the label of a denomination upon you, and there was uh, somebody else, and the group that we came out, they have a song that they're doing at all their camp meetings now, so I'm, I'm proud to be a Pentecostal, <laughs> and people are jumping around, it's like, I don't get it, <laughs> All right, that's, that's, that's the most important thing, that you could be a Pentecostal. And I thought we were going to get Pentecostal all up in here tonight a little bit. Mm -hmm. so give you some people some smelling salts. <laughs> so Jesus said this, I do, uh, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And we'll get into the next part of that in just a minute. It was obvious from this statement when Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law, that there were those who believed Jesus was trying to do away with the law of Moses. Now, the whole Jewish identity, their whole nationality, everything about them was tied up in the law of Moses. So when Jesus comes, he is not just threatening their religious system. He is also attacking their national, nationality of who they are. And there were some, some uh, uh, there are those today who believe Jesus destroyed the law and the prophets, and he didn't. Now, somewhere between chapter 4 and 5 of, Jesus te of, G of Matthew, uh, the teachings of Jesus had become well-known. The news about him went out somewhere between four, chapter 4 and 5. There's a span of time. It doesn't tell us how long it was, but there was a span of time from Jesus' beginning to the time that he goes to the Sermon on the Mount that his teaching and his notoriety had become, uh, well, he had become well known in that area. And this is interesting because Jesus, when he begins his ministry, he didn't start in Jerusalem. So you think if you're going to start a religion, you're going to go somewhere important like the seat of the Jewish religion. And we're going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to stand on the stairs of the temple and I'm going to tell everybody that I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he didn't start his ministry there. And he didn't start it in Athens, which was another important city in that time, in that era, in that region of the uh, Mediterranean. And he didn't go to Rome, the most powerful city in the world, to begin his ministry. 
The Bible tells us that he began in the rural areas of Zebulun and Naphtali. From this humble location, Jesus started a movement that impacted the world. It's interesting that those two places are named because they are, when you talked about Jewish history, they are probably the least known two tribes of Israel. They're like almost obscure. And so it's telling us Jesus came from this obscure place to start teaching. And in Matthew chapter 4, and I really, I, I never caught this until I was reading uh, and preparing over the past couple weeks. Jesus calls, starts calling his disciples in chapter 4. And I look in, you know, he calls uh, Peter and Andrew. He calls James and John. But it never tells us that he called the other 12. And so I started looking and I see Matthew is called a few chapters later, and the other ones are called a few chapters later. So I'm thinking, okay, when Jesus went to the Sermon on the Mount, there really probably wasn't 12 people with him. It was him and four guys, four of them. So if that be the case, then that's even more of a, an astounding fact that Jesus comes from nowhere, and he has these four guys with him. Now, there's traditions on how old the disciples were. You've seen these pictures of these, these old guys following Jesus around, all bald-headed guys and you know, crippled-up guys following Jesus. That's probably not an accurate picture. Jesus was considered a rabbi. And for people, uh, a rabbi usually called, when you went to, were called to follow a rabbi, you were probably somewhere in your mid-teens to early 20s, somewhere in that, that area. And these were the most promising, most gifted uh, Torah st uh, students that there were. These just, it was, it's like going in, getting ready to go into the NBA because you had like your regular school, then you had the, uh, the next grade up, and now you were getting ready to follow a rabbi. That means in a, in a rabbinical sense, you have made it. And so he calls these guys with no rabbinical background, no, no Torah background, except from what they learned when they were younger. They were all involved in their family business. They weren't involved in preaching or teaching. And Jesus comes and says, come follow me. This was a, a, a huge deal for them that I'm going to, I got picked, I got drafted. <laughs> you many of you ever saw The Replacements, the movie The Replacements? You, or the NFL goes on strike and they call up all these second string people to fill in the roster until the season's over. That's how these guys were. We're the replacements. We're going to get to play in the Super Bowl. Guy with no background in this whatsoever. So they were probably in their early, uh, late teens, early 20s, and they were called to follow Jesus. And the purpose of the disciple the calling of the disciple was to teach them that one day they would be able to teach other people. That's the purpose of a disciple, is to learn so that you can uh, share it with somebody else. So the ministry of Jesus started in a rural area of Galilee. It started with four teenage boys who had no rabbinical training. Now, this doesn't sound like a... a a, a, a great success story. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> We're going to change the world. But Jesus knew what he was doing. Right. 
And things grew from there. And somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 5, Jesus had gathered thousands of people, thousands of followers, and he was well-known throughout the region. And evidently, some of the teachings of Jesus were upsetting the religious leaders. He was accused of doing away with the law and the prophets. This claim was false. Jesus lived and died as an observant Jew. Think about that. He didn't do away with that. He lived his whole life according to that. Now, we're not going down that path, so we're not going to go down that rabbit hole of, you know, we're going to start wearing prayer shawls and doing Shabbat every, every Friday night. We're not going to do that, so that's not what Jesus is talking about. So in this part of the Sermon on the Mount begins to clarify exactly what Jesus means when he's addressing these questions. He says, I've not come to destroy, but I have come to fulfill. Right. All right? And there's a Greek word there, and I practiced all day, and I can't remember how to pronounce it. And it means to fulfill. <laughs> it means to fulfill. It doesn't mean to destroy. doesn't mean to, to do away with. It means to be fulfilled, completed. So we've been talking the last few weeks here in, at South Coast. Pastor Charles has been preaching on the, the sacrifices of Leviticus. That Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled every one of these sacrifices. So Jesus goes, gets this, um, he makes it clear that he's not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And what's interesting here also is that G Moses went up to the mountain and received the commandments of God, and God wrote them on stone. God took his finger out and he wrote them with his finger. The Bible tells us that. God wrote these out and gave them to Moses. And he's walking down the mountain. And I don't know if any of you saw the history of the world with Mel Brooks. You ever saw that? Where he's coming down off the mountain. He's got three tablets. The 15th, the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and he gave the law to Israel. That law had become distorted. And it was based on external adherence, rituals, traditions, strict observance. In 2017, a Holocaust survivor sued El Al Airlines for sexism. She was asked to move because an ultra-Orthodox man was to be seated next to her. Why? Because according to the New York Times article, Strictly religious Jewish men who refuse to sit next to a woman for fear of even inadvert contact that could be considered immodest. She was asked to move her seat because the guy that was going to sit next to her didn't want to be sit, sit, sitting next to a woman because it would, could possibly hurt him in his fulfilling the law. She won the, the lawsuit. It wasn't about the money. It was just basically to address this issue. And this type of thing was common in the days of Jesus. They talked about taking people out and stoning them. The Pharisees had a strict interpretation of the law. They even wrote rules on how to apply the law, as we said. And the rules had to be followed. And this is what Jesus came to address. You've tried to fulfill the requirements of the law, but you failed. You've tried to do it, you've tried to live it out, you've tried to stick to it, but you can't do it. You failed every attempt, you failed it. 
Look at Israel's history. They've served the Lord. They'd get on fire for God. God would bless them. They'd fall into sin. They'd fall away. Then they would repeat the process again and again and again and again. Jesus was trying to tell them, you cannot do this in the power of your flesh. That fallen Adamic nature each one of us has. We can't do it. It's not in us to be able to fulfill the righteousness of God's law on our own, through our own merits. And when we do this, and this is going to get us points with God, and this is going to uh, really get us, uh, we're going to do something really good, and it's going to make God stand up and take notice and, and earn us a place in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work like that. Their religion wasn't working, and Jesus called them and told them it was time for them to lose it. And it was because everything was based on externals. And they would fall into this cycle again and again and again. We'd have revival, we'd fall away. They'd have revival, they'd fall away. They'd come back to God, they'd fall away. They'd come back to God, they would fall away. This was because they were trying to do this on their own. And you can't do it. Religion isn't working. You need to lose it. And Jesus was making it known that he had come to put an end to their hypocrisy. They they had missed the point. The law teaches us that it is impossible to fulfill it all. That's why Jesus came to fulfill it. He said, I've not come to destroy, I've come to fulfill. So Jesus, just like Moses, went up on top of the mountain and received the commandments of God. Jesus goes on top of the mount, he sits down, and he begins to teach the people what his commandments are. Moses was given tablets and came down and and he read them to the people. Here, God takes on flesh. God himself becomes like one of us and he sits down and he starts teaching because he didn't want there to be any misunderstanding about what he's looking for. I'm not getting something that God gave to a man and then I get it secondhand. God came down firsthand and gave it to us so that we could understand it. In the New Testament, God writes his law in flesh. The same finger that wrote into those those stone tablets and wrote out the commandments, God's spirit wants to write those on the flesh of our hearts. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The holy, incorruptible, inerrant word of God became just like we are. And he doesn't write his law on tablets. He speaks the word himself so that we clearly understand what he's saying. Jesus said not one jot or tittle is going to be be done away with till all is fulfilled. Now, this was hyperbole, and it was telling us that everything in the law that he came to fulfill was important. And when all is fulfilled, that was the purpose, for all of it to be fulfilled. The law of Moses points to Christ, and we've, like I said, we spent the last few weekends, uh, weeks going over that. Jesus fulfills all of those requirements. Then he goes on to verse 19 through 20. He said this. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does not teach them shall be called, and whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. Now, there's some misunderstanding here when people, with people. They think that Jesus was referring to the law of Moses. This is why we need to observe the law. That's why we still need to, to watch what we eat and we need to do these practices. And I'll be honest, some of the, the um, traditions that Christianity came from are interesting and the, because all of the things in the Jewish culture, they're symbols, but they're symbols of Christ. And here's an interesting fact. Most people that go into Messianic congregations convert to Judaism. They convert more people to Judaism than they convert to Christ. Most people that leave a, 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 a Messianic community will end up going into full-blown Judaism. Jesus is not calling us backwards. And number one, are, are we all Gentiles in here? We all pork eaters? <laughs> Law was never given to us. It was never given to me. It was given to the Jews. Paul says this. The law was for the Jews. Not for us. We were never born under the law. We were never commanded to obey the law. But we're commanded to obey the spirit of the law, which is completely different. So he's not calling us to, to judge people on what they eat and uh, taste not, touch not, handle not. God is calling us to be to fulfill the law, to, to, to live out the, the true law of God, and that's having God's word in our lives to direct us and to, to, uh, to show the world his love through everything that we do, through everything that we say, yes. that they'll see the word of God in us. So when he was referring this, he said this, he was not referring to the law of Moses. He was referring to the commandments that he laid down in the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 21 through 48, Jesus goes on to tell about you know, the commandments that are there. And he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, what does that mean? What does that mean? When I was a kid in church, they used that verse, but there again, we weren't coming from a, a, a background that was very um, theologically deep, all right? So when they, you would have phrases like this, your, your righteousness has to uh, be greater than that of the Pharisees. So they said, well, the, right, the, the Pharisees fasted three times a week. We should fast four times a week. The Pharisees uh, paid their, their tithes and that. We need to, that's why we need to do it. We need to outdo the Pharisees. That's not faith. That's just more of Pharisee. Right. That's, not, that's just being a better Pharisee. That's not what it's talking about. Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness that was in the physical living out of the law. It's got to be something more than that. Your religion's not working. Get rid of it. And Jesus is saying that entrance into the kingdom of God is not by external legalism, but is by allowing Jesus to reign in our hearts. The Jews in Jesus' days were slaves to their traditions. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, and jot this down, you can read it later. 
You have made the word of God ineffective because of your tradition. God gave the law to Moses, and you made that law ineffective. How'd they do it? By the religious traditions. He says this in Mark 7 and 9, you have rejected the commandment of God so you could keep your traditions. Now, I don't know if I've used this illustration before. Uh, there was a, uh, a mom was making dinner, Sunday dinner for her family, and her young daughter, eight, let's just say her eight-year-old daughter was there, and she's watching her mom. Her mom's baking a ham. She gets the pan out, gets the ham out, takes the knife out. She cuts off both ends of the ham. And she says, the daughter says to her mom, why'd you cut off both ends of the ham? I don't know. That's the way my mom always did it. So she said, well, let's go ask grandma. So they go to, and so this is a story, okay? This is not a real thing. This is just an illustration. <laughs> <laughs> so they go ask grandma, why'd you cut the ends off your ham? She said, well, I don't know. That's the way my mother always do it, did it. So they go to see great-grandmother. said, great-grandmother, why did you always cut the ends off the ham? She said, because I didn't have a pan that the ham would fit in. <laughs> and people do that in church. Religious traditions and denominations, they get a hold of some little thing and they hold on to it and people are doing it 50, 60, 75, 100 years later and they don't know why. They've kept their traditions, and the traditions don't have any power. They uphold the tradition. Well, if we get away from this, and I understand that. People that, these uh, churches that keep their traditions, they do so to preserve their identity as a group. Because this is our little caveat that we do different than everybody else. So we want to hang on to that so there's always our group. So we always have our denomination. Well, that's not what God came to do, start denominations. Didn't come to give us traditions so that we stick to these particular traditions. In Matthew tw chapter 23, and you can read that chapter, Jesus confronts the Jews of his day, and he tells them that they're binding heavy burdens on people. They get their phylacteries, and they, they wrap them around their arms. This is exactly what religion does. It wraps around us and tightens us up. You bind heavy burdens on people. You're creating rules and restrictions that are not helping people. They're weighing people down. You use your religion as something to flaunt, to be seen. Look at me, I'm giving to the poor. Look at me, I've got my face all disfigured. I'm fasting and praying. I'm making these long speeches so that people can see, hear me and think, man, he's got a really good prayer. But Jesus tells them, you've taken advantage of widows. You have neglected justice, mercy, and faith. You have an external piety, but inwardly, you're corrupt. You're like a whitewashed grave. You know, you go to the cemetery and you see all these graves. You say, man, that's really nice. They got the nice marble out there and granite and it's chiseled and it's got all the flowers and it looks so nice. But what's inside the grave? Doesn't matter what the outside looks like. What's on the inside? 
And this is what Jesus was comparing them to. You look like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're just full of death and corruption. And he called them snakes on top of that. He said that they were slaves to their religion and they needed to lose their religion. So Jesus tells them how to re- lose their religion. Do we have that one up there? Is that next? Do I have that one? Jesus said this, and you can go through the rest of this chapter because this is a, a very, um, Jesus goes into some very particular things here. He said, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Well, it's all right. You know, this is telling us that you can physically kill somebody. You've heard that complaint. Well, I didn't kill them. Well, no, you didn't kill anybody. But words have an effect on people. Attitudes have an effect on people. And not only is bitterness bad for the person that you're after, bitterness is like acid, and it will burn and destroy whatever container it's in. Jesus was telling us, you've heard this? Well, let me go a step further than that. Jesus says it on, therefore... He says, um, tells us what to do about that and go be reconciled to your brother. In verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's, that's a good, powerful statement. We can all agree with that. Okay, we can agree with that. But Jesus says that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to say, it's better to pluck your eye out and that you go into heaven maimed. Now, was Jesus telling us to literally pluck our eyes out? Somebody say, I don't know, was he? (laughs) (laughs) This is hyperbole. He's telling, showing us the importance of how this is. It's better to get get, get rid of what's causing your problem. Cleanse the heart. You know, we, we came up in church, you know, you heard those old preachers. You know, you can do the first look, but it's that second look. <laughs> no, it's not the second look. There's still a problem. <laughs> There's still a problem. It's got to be addressed. And with things today, I think, well, you know, I'm not, you know, we have, we have learned in this society, in our culture, that there are things that can, that can undermine a marriage. It's just not the physical act of adultery. It can be pornography. It can be um, uh, inappropriate relationships with people online, developing an emotional affair with somebody. Well, we're not physically... Well, it's, you know, it doesn't matter what's in your heart. See, we're still trying to live this out according to how we... according to our flesh... But Jesus is saying this goes beyond your actual doing because if you have your heart right, you cannot because you will not. All right? It's not like, yeah, how many of you saw Toy Story? How many movie references have I had tonight? (laughs) (laughs) 
And I've even had three music references. Oh. Now we got to come up with food. Okay. There. Did have him. Do you remember Mr. Potato Head? I'm a married spud. I'm a married spud. I'm a married spud. God doesn't want us to have to repeat it. <laughs> he wants us to live it. Okay. Oh, I just, nobody ever, I mean, how many, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but how many of you get up in the morning and think, you know, I feel married today. <laughs> I don't wake up in the morning and say, woohoo, I feel married. <laughs> yes, I do. I really do. <laughs> But it's, it's, it just has to go beyond your feeling. It's something that I live out every day. There's been a commitment there. And one of the things about that commitment is I'm afraid that if I ever get into eternity and I've been unfaithful to my wife, her dad is going to beat me to death. <laughs> he sat me down when we first got married. He said, I don't remember exactly what, it, what he said before that or after that. But he said, if you ever hit her, and that's, he just left it right there. If you ever hit her, send her home. Like, and he, her dad was a big guy, so he, he put the fear of God in you. <laughs> so it's, he's telling us about marriage is a sacred thing. And then he goes on to say, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let her, him give her a certificate of divorce. Say, okay, in that time, I say, okay, you're not ironing my shirts right. So we're gonna, I'm going to get me another wife. For whatever reason, and they had a law for that. Moses granted it in the law. They had it. Jesus saying, this is not God's plan. This is one of those things of... Uh, I'm trying to think of the theological term. There is a theological term about this of, um, where God had allowed things because of the, the hearts of the people, permitted it. And so God permitted it. Not saying it was right, but Jesus was saying the only reason he did it was because of the hardness of your people's hearts. This is not God's intention. This is a sacred and binding relationship. It mirrors the image of Christ and his church. That's what it's supposed to do. Then he says, you've heard it said of old, you should not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Jesus, if you look here, Jesus is going down through the Ten Commandments. And here's the one about uh, false testimony. And he addresses these things and basically tells us that all of these things have to come from a heart and people are looking at it that's com completely devoted and committed to God. How else could we do it? Because our nature is corrupt. At the very heart of our being, we are of a corrupt nature. We are a flesh of heart. We have desires. We're people. God made us this way. There's nothing wrong with this. This is the way God made us. But we have to bring those things under the, the uh, submission to Christ. And then he says, you have heard it, it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard it said. Now, now he's addressing one of their rules. This was not one of the commandments of God. This was something that was added to the law. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus, when the, the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us, who is my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You look at these and you think, how in the world can we do this? I can't love people I don't like. It's hard. That's really hard. I mean, if somebody's done you dirty and you get, it's like, I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pray, God, kill him. That's what I'm going to pray. <laughs> but God tells us to, to love them, to bless them, to, uh, to uh, do good for them. He makes his, God blesses people. He blesses not just righteous people, but God blesses everybody. He sends the, uh, the sun and blesses those, and he sends the rain. Now, in that Middle Eastern context, rain is not a bad thing. It was this rainy day. God sends the rain. It's not a bad thing. Rain is a very good thing in the Middle East. So when they say God sends the rain on the just and on the unjust, well, God's going to water their fields too. And you're talking about a dry, arid uh, climate where there's no, where it's like rocks and more rocks. And God's going to send rain on those people as well. God blesses. God loves everybody. And that's what he's trying to say here is that God loves everyone. Jesus addresses their interpretation of the law all based on strict external observance. Your religion doesn't please God. Well, I don't cheat and I don't cheat on my taxes and, and I, I try to do good and I donate to goodwill and... and I got, I got something going on for me. I'm not a bad person. God doesn't want you not to be just a, a good moral person. God wants you to be an obedient servant. And there's a difference to that. God wants to write his heart in the flesh, or God wants to write his law in the flesh of his heart. That same finger that chiseled, thou shalt not kill. God wants to do the same in our hearts. Now, it sounds good, but it's really kind of painful if you think about it. God's engraving something in our heart, on our flesh, taking it and digging it in there, writing it there. God wants to have his law on the inside. Jeremiah 31, 33. <clears throat> but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart 
and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, something that you can feel, something that's living, something that's beating. Our experience with God needs to be alive, not something cold and, you know, and just hard. I've heard people in the past, I want, I'd like, I want to live it hard. I want to, somebody to preach it to me hard and somebody just to preach me under the pew and preach me to the, we used to call it the altar. Just come scream or cry into the altar and fall down and wail. Feel that conviction. The preaching of the word of God is not to, ev- ev- to evoke a, a, an emotional response where you either jump up or run around the church or you fall down and you're, you're, you're wailing and screaming. It's for you to take and apply to your life. Whatever happens after tonight, I've done what God's called me to do. And when you take that word, it's up to you whether you're going to apply it or not. That guy cuts you off in traffic and you want to tell him he's number one? <laughs> What is about traffic? It's just like you get you can really tell a lot about a person when they drive. <laughs> like, man, when's the last time you you go to church with me? Second <laughs> Corinthians three and three. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of flesh. That is of the heart. Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's awesome. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen? Now, when I first came to the Lord, you know, like I said, I came through a, a, a Pentecostal church. And the big thing within our group was that you'd be baptized in the Holy Ghost. That's when you knew you made it. You got it. And when you get to the Holy Ghost, you're going to live different. You're going to talk different. You're going to walk different. You're going to look at the world different. You're not going to do those things you used to do, and you're not going to go to those places you used to go. And everything. And, and I bought that. And after I had that experience with God, you know what? Everything in my life was still the same. Because I was expecting God just to come down and just do it. God just doesn't do it. God puts it out there. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Charles was talking about some of this stuff last week, and I thought, dude, you need to stop because you know, I'm not going to have anything to say next week. <laughs> <laughs> if we would only stop trying to interpret what god says from a religious standpoint religion gets in the way rules and regulations don't bring us closer to god tradition makes the word of god ineffective and you would think that we as christ followers would have this down but we don't Our natural tendency is to create rules and regulations. And there are churches who will micromanage your life for you. They have church rules in addition to what the Bible says on limited interpretation of things from a unique perspective. 
You can't cut your hair. You can't wear makeup. You can't wear pants. And what started out as one person's con- personal conviction be, um, <clears throat> be, has now become a matter of salvation. And that's just nuts. So how does this happen? What happens? We have to present ourselves a living sacrifice. Every day we have to crawl up on the altar and ask God to take my life, take my heart. Take, I present myself a sacrifice today. Help me to get my flesh out of the way. Help me to get my attitudes out of the way. Help me to get my way of thinking out of the way. Let your word sink into me and change me and direct me and make me better. I don't want to be a slave to traditions. I don't want to be a slave to religion. I want to be yours. Everything that I have and every aspect of my life, I want it to reflect the power of God. I want the word of God to be effective in my life. I want people to see Jesus in me. When people see your rules or your uh, holiness standards or your guidelines, this doesn't tell people about Jesus. It tells people where you go to church. And we're not out here to promote one church brand over another. We're here to promote the kingdom of God. But I want, when people see me, I want them to see a life that is surrendered to him oozing love for God and does love people, applying the word of God to my life. God is calling us to lose our religion, to surrender our hearts to him. And let the pages of this book, everything in this book points us to Jesus. It all points to him. So people think, well, you know, it says don't do this, don't do that. What's it pointing you to? It's not just telling us to abstain from this and abstain from that and do this, do this, do this, but don't do that. It's telling us to draw closer to him. It all points to him. It all points to being a surrendered to him. Everything in this book reveals God's character and nature. And that's what we need to have in our lives every single day.